Hi, I'm Jake, your podcast producer here at New Hope, and I'd like to invite you to join us with her a new show. It's called What Do I Say? and it's hosted by Pastor Ryan. It seeks to answer just that question. What do I say when I'm dealing with these issues? Whether that's homosexuality, the problem of good and evil, or does God exist? We invite you to listen along to today's episode. It's a good one. Hello and welcome to the podcast show called What Do I Say? My name is Ryan and I'm the lead pastor at New Hope Church. And as always, I'm joined by Pastor Jake. Howdy. Thank you for uh, for listening wherever you may be uh, today. As a reminder, the goal of this monthly podcast is to apply the timeless truths of Scripture to the timely topics that we face today. This, this show is really all about being equipped as followers of Jesus. And we don't shy away from taking on tough topics and hard questions and getting into scripture to say, what does the Bible have to say about them so that we have a strong uh, foundation when it comes to these uh, challenging, mm-hmm. emotional um, topics that we as people face today in this uh, rapidly changing world. I, I appreciate how, I don't know, we've been doing the show for how long now? Three, three months maybe? And we've dove into homosexuality, uh, transgender issues, and, and then today's issue. And I appreciate diving into the real things and you helping us to uh, be equipped to have conversations and to think critically and biblically. Well, please know that we pray for all of you as listeners and that this would just be a a time well spent as we uh, together take on another challenging topic and Mm -hmm. really a a timely one. Uh, Today, we're going to talk about abortion. And uh, of course, that's being brought to the forefront with the recent Supreme Court decision. Before we jump into that, I do want to mention, and I'll say it at the end of this podcast as well, that if you have questions or you want to interact more on today's topic, uh, you're welcome to email me at ryan at newhopeadel.org. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, and I do. I do hear from listeners and uh, always appreciate, appreciate that. Well, when it comes to abortion, uh, as I just mentioned, uh, this is... Uh, this is something that's on our minds right now. This is, of course, not a new topic, and to varying degrees, it's something that's familiar for all of us. But with the landmark Supreme Court ruling that took place uh, 10 days or so ago, which overturned uh, Roe v. Wade, um, this is in the news, and this is on our minds, and this is have you know conversations around the dinner table, uh, social media posts. I mean, this is where people are at and what people are thinking about. I want to take a moment, though, before we dive into different topics on this uh, subject matter and just address what exactly did the court just do? Because I think I, I've just noticed there's there's misunderstandings um, about that. For example, I've heard the, the statement or the headline that abortion is now illegal. Well, that's not at all what just happened. So let's just step back and get a, some background on the situation. And we really need to step back almost 50 years ago. Because right. in 1973, the case Roe v. Wade, which is probably the most famous one that we Americans just even know about when it comes to decisions that the Supreme Court decides on, they ruled in a 7-2 majority opinion that the Constitution generally protects the freedom to choose to have an abortion. And legally, it wasn't very grounded. It was loosely connected to the 14th Amendment. Um 
But nonetheless, it passed. And that decision struck down many of the state's abortion laws that they had in place. Okay. So take Iowa or any other state for that matter, whatever laws they had, this landmark decision in 1973 just scrubbed all of that and tied it generally again to the Constitution. Well, fast forward to 2018. The state of Mississippi passed a state law that banned abortions after 15 weeks, with the exception of medical emergencies or fetal abnormalities. Now, Mississippi's only abortion clinic, uh, it's called the Jackson Women's Health Organization, immediately filed a lawsuit and used Roe to stop the new law. Well, Mississippi then uh, worked sort of back against that and asked the Supreme Court in 2020 to hear their case. And the court agreed to take on the case, but only to address one question from the case. There were two other points of debate that the Supreme Court was unwilling to to hear that. Here was was the the one question that they were willing to hear, and they in fact did hear. Are all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions unconstitutional? Now, if you're hearing that and you're like, oh, what, huh? I was going to say, could you possibly explain What are you that? talking about? Yeah. Okay. Generally speaking, the viability age for the unborn is marked somewhere approximately at 24 weeks. So let's just go with that timestamp. The question again is, are all pre-viability prohibitions, in other words, are all um, abortions before the age of viability unconstitutional. Okay. Now that key word of unconstitutional, of course, ties it back to Roe v. Wade. So it did tee up that precedence of that court case from 1973. Now we know from the famous leaked document from Justice Samuel Alito it was his first draft of writing the majority of opinion. Of course, that launched into all kinds of, um, I mean, protests and, and mm-hmm. destruction and, and all of that. Um, but this is what uh, Justice Alito wrote. He said that we hold the Roe and Casey cases, that is, must be overruled. It is time to heed to the Constitution and return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Now, that was written at a time when the, the justices hadn't fully decided. So nobody really actually knew how it was going to turn out. Right. But in fact, it did turn out to be the case. On June 24th, the court ruled six to three to uphold Mississippi's abortion ban and right as a state to put in place an abortion ban after 15 weeks. And then they ruled five to four to overrule Roe and Casey. Pretty monumental decision. Mm-hmm. Now, what, what's important to understand here is that the decision was not based on morality of the practice of abortion, but it is, but only that it is not a constitutionally protected right. That's the key. And that's the I mean, limited that's the, scope. That's the job of the Supreme Court, right? Is Does this align, yes or no, with Constitution? That's right. Okay. See, it did not make abortion illegal. That's so important to understand. It returned the issue to the state level. That's what it did. Now, we're already seeing states begin to to form policy or to return to former policy that they had that was set aside uh, with some states, of course, that are moving to put in place laws to um, protect abortion. And then other states 
to protect life. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's what states are working on now. So obviously this isn't a settled topic legally. It just simply removed it from the Constitution as a constitutionally protected right, pushed it back to the states. And so there's a lot of work still to be done mm -hmm. on the abortion topic. Now, we, um, we're here in Iowa, of course, uh, where we live and where we get to do ministry. And so for Iowa, Governor Reynolds is staunchly pro-life, and she is working immediately and very hard, in fact, to reinstate a bill that she signed in 2018 called the Fetal Heartbeat Law. Um, but of course, it never took effect because right. of, of the laws that were in place, and it was ruled unconstitutional upon signing it. Now, if she is successful through the courts, um, Iowa really would have one of the most become one of the most difficult places in the United okay. States to have uh, to get an abortion, that is. So hopefully that clarifies what happened. Here a couple yeah, weeks ago. Really important to understand what actually happened and what didn't. Yeah, I appreciate that. And we also know what's happening because we are seeing incredible reaction. Mm -hmm. and, and this is not a surprise, of course, to the Supreme Court decision. We've seen uh, incredible anger and, and protests on one side and, of course, celebration mm -hmm. on the other. It, it has exposed uh, quite a bit. And of course, if you if you are one that is online a lot, especially on social media and looking at the chatter that's going on there, it it may feel like absolutely everyone opposes the pro life position. That it is such a minority because there's such a vocal protest and, and emotional mm -hmm. response to what happened, um, including from our president, frankly. But if you're a follower of Jesus and you're somebody who um, you're you're in local church and you're involved there you might begin to feel like that everybody is excited about this decision. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's where you're planted. It's where your social connections are, or where you, where you try to connect with people is where you're going to begin to experience, you know, how do people feel about this yeah. decision? Now, what's interesting is according to the Pew data research center, that people's opinion, public opinion, that is on abortion has remained relatively stable. Interesting. I would it, not have expected that. It, yeah, exactly. It really hasn't moved culturally. Um, here, here's where the stats land. 61% of Americans surveyed say abortion should be legal hmm. in all or most cases. 37% say it should be illegal in all or most cases. So approximately 6 out of 10 uh, would be considered more aligned, more pro-choice. Uh, mm-hmm. Four out of 10 approximately would align more pro-life. That's sort of how the pie gets sliced up mm -hmm. in terms of in our culture. Now, also, according to Pew, the issue does break strongly along religious lines. So, for example, 74% of evangelicals say abortion should be illegal. Now, I want to pause real quick on that because that's... That's a high number, of course, but mm -hmm. notice what it says, though, that approximately 25% of evangelicals or people that are, uh, would say they're followers of Jesus and they are uh, participating in a local church, would align more with a pro-choice view. Mm -hmm. So in other words, we shouldn't have the assumption that everybody in church is pro-life. Yeah. And, and everybody outside the church is pro-choice. Now, to that last statement I just made, Pew notes that 84% of non-religious people would align with pro-choice and say that abortion should be legal. Okay. 
So that's where the stats yeah. lie. I mean, so the reality is there's quite possibly someone listening to this podcast who goes to New Hope who would identify as pro-choice, right? Yeah. Well, sure. According yeah. to the stats, I mean, st- that statistically, it's pretty likely. That's right, and yeah. and you know they would. I can't speak for any any person in particular, but you have sort of the tension point between these scriptures mm-hmm. in the Bible that touch on this, which we're going to talk about in a moment, but also some pro-choice sentiments that mm-hmm. go on there. And we're going to talk about those too in this yeah. episode. And so th- there is tension there. Mm-hmm. There's a, a pulling of sorts and, and how do I land on this type of situation? Yeah. I'm excited to kind of dive into some of the, the, kind of support from the Bible as well as some of these kind of pro-choice arguments. Cause I think having things actually discussed instead of just ranting online, I think is a really, really positive thing. Well, let's do that now. So what does the Bible say about abortion? And and I just want to mention before jumping into this, that we here at New Hope Church uh, as an elder team and church leadership, we take time and we we work through these types of controversial issues and topics. Uh, so years ago, uh, when I first came to New Hope, we began to sit down and we talked through the issue of abortion. And we looked at these scriptures and we we felt, we uh, built convictions. And so uh, even in getting ready for this type of podcast today, a lot of this work has already done and been affirmed in terms of New Hope and where we stand on this as as a church. And what I really want to highlight with that was the the process we went through and the process I think all of us should go through is first and most is looking at the Bible. What does the Bible say? Because the Bible is the one that has authority to frame our thinking. If we say we follow Jesus, then we need to go to that as the source first and most. So in other words, we cannot have our our politics drive or shape our theology. Absolutely. The Bible shapes our theology, which then informs our politics. Absolutely. Now, I, I need us to hear this too, and this is true on lots of different topics, but there is a difference between legality and morality. Mm-hmm. They are not the same thing. Just because something is legal doesn't make it moral, and vice versa for that matter. As an example, adultery is legal, doesn't make it moral. And we could come up exa- examples on all sides of this. Now, every single law that is passed has a moral component to it. But just because something is legal doesn't mean it's moral, as I just shared. Law cannot make morality. Law reflects morality, but it doesn't make something right or wrong morally. Now, there's a lot more that you can say about that, but I need us to understand that point right here, because it isn't like when the Supreme Court passed Roe v. Wade that all of a sudden abortion became morally right. And it doesn't mean that just because this decision that was passed here recently that it changes the moral landscape. We have to go somewhere else to root the morality and the moral assessment of something beside law. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, it would be constantly changing based on... Voting lines and yeah, absolutely. And and people would be creators of morality. Mm. Well, you can't have that. No, you can't. Not in any ultimate sense. If you want to have a relativistic, postmodern type of view of morality, then people can make and do all the time mm-hmm. uh, moral moral codes. But morality has to be rooted in something deeper and beyond that. 
the foundation for morality, at least when it comes, now I'm going to bring it back to the pro-life perspective, it comes from two places. Now, I want us to know something, that the Bible is one of those places, and we're going to get to that second here in just a moment, but I want to talk about another place that pro-life morality is grounded in that actually has nothing to do with God. Okay. You see, it's a complete misunderstanding that every, the, or excuse me, the only justification for morality uh, of pro-life and anti-abortion is the Bible. That is not true. There are people who are pro-life and aren't even theists. Mm-hmm. We'll say, well, where does that come from? Well, I'm glad you asked. It comes from natural law. Now, I could we can do a whole episode on natural law. So I'm going to keep it very, very short and um, hopefully simple. Natural law is a philosophy. It's been around for thousands of years. And it's a view that says what is moral is what operates according to the laws of nature. In other words, if you just look at the natural way things happen, right. that that's good and right. And that shouldn't be interfered with. Okay. So let me give an example. Left alone, a human is born, they live, and eventually they die. That's the normal course of things. And so natural, natural law says that that would be moral. That's the moral way to live. And it would be therefore immoral for a human to not have the opportunity to live a natural life and die a natural death. Okay. So what's the result of that mean? Well, that becomes grounding for more, uh, murder being immoral. It is wrong to take the life of someone else and interfere with them living out a natural course of a natural death Mm -hmm. for their life. Um, Another example, natural law says that a person has a natural right to not be owned by another thing. Mm -hmm. So in other words, freedom is morally good. Slavery is morally bad. And there's so many other examples like this. And so what is this doing? Well, this philosophy is substantial because it grounds morality outside of human invention. But in this case, it doesn't require God in order to justify something Mm -hmm. as right or wrong. Now, for us here in the West and for us as Americans, this philosophy, while it has ancient roots, it was revitalized by John Locke. And it was baked into our founding fathers' documents. History class? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Our founding fathers were, they loved John Locke, and they Mm -hmm. brought his philosophy as well as their Christian uh, background for most, not all the founding fathers. They baked all that into our, our founding documents because they were wise to do so. Like, for example... The U.S. Declaration of Independence. Actually, yesterday was July 4th in terms of when we're recording and we celebrated this. Here's how it begins in the preamble. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. Well, that's from Scripture. That's, That's from the Bible. That they are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Well, where do those three attributes come from? They actually come from natural law. See, what the founding fathers did was they weaved together a biblical worldview and natural law, which was a brilliant move because the American experiment was for all people, mm-hmm. not just for the theist. Right. And so this type of, of um, statement or preamble here was something the theist and the non-theist both could support. Right. But the, the rights to pursue life liberty or freedom 
and to pursue happiness or those things we believe will uh, bring about happiness. That's natural law. So I bring all this up to point out again, just to highlight again, that some do ground a pro-life worldview on natural law, that it is immoral to take life, including the life of the unborn, Mm -hmm. and that that unborn child should have the natural opportunity to have a natural life. Mm -hmm. And to interfere with that would be inappropriate. See, the Bible, again, is not the only way to get to a pro-life position. I like that. Appreciate you sharing that. But the Bible does have a lot to say. And again, as followers of Jesus, this is where we need to go. See, the Bible and a biblical worldview will fiercely defend and will support a pro-life perspective in every stage of life. So pre-born, infant, child, teen, adult, end of life, as sometimes they say, from womb to tomb. Mm Mm-hmm. It fiercely defends and supports life. Now, a theological foundation for that, you know, obviously we got to have that. So what does the Bible say? Now, what's interesting is the Bible does not specifically use the word abortion anywhere in the Bible. Uh, It doesn't address the practice of abortion specifically. That said, there are several passages that clearly support an anti-abortion and pro-life perspective. Let's just highlight a few, uh, some of these here. Uh, let's start in Genesis. Good place to start. Go in the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. This verse highlights that a human being is a person made in the image or the likeness of God. So the verse says, so God created mankind. Here it is. In his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. So men and women, both um, uniquely created in the likeness um, of God. Mm -hmm. That communicates value right there. Absolutely. Jump then to the book of Exodus, second book of the Bible, chapter 20, verse 13. Here it says, you shall not murder. Now, that's pretty simple. Four words. Mm -hmm. I mean, murder or the taking of innocent life is prohibited. We just touched on that with natural law, but the Bible clearly articulates it as well. We are not to take life. Now, Exodus, uh, the next chapter, chapter 21. Still in Exodus? Still in Exodus, yeah. Uh, Exodus 21, verses 23 through 25 which I'm going to read here in a moment, but just to introduce it is is very interesting to me because here in this passage, as it's talking about prohibitions and, and giving commands from, from God is for how to relate with one another, here in these verses, the Lord lays out penalties for injuring or causing the death of a baby still in the womb. Very interesting. So it's not like a clump of tissue, mm-hmm. right? It's like from a biblical worldview there's there's consequence for that because that unborn child matters. What's interesting, in addition, is that the penalties given are the exact same for a person who's already born. So this, in my estimation at least, clearly indicates that God considers a baby in the womb to be just as much a human being as a full-grown hmm. adult or yeah. anybody who's born. So let's read the passage. Again, Exodus 21 verses 22 through 25. It says, if people are fighting and hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined 
whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. But if there is serious injury, this is to the child or to the woman, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Wow. That's quite a, a statement there of endorsement for the value and um, the humanity of the unborn. Let's uh, continue to move forward. Job. Can I, can I jump in oh, here? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So one, one uh, response to this would be, well, that's great, but this is Old Testament law, right? This is not, I mean, we don't follow any of the other laws in Exodus, do we? It's a great point. So, so you had you have some laws that that connect to the character and nature of who God is that do connect to the the Christian mm-hmm. um, that we that we follow either because we see them echoed in the New Testament or Jesus directly spoke to them. But there are some other ones that are very much rooted in the culture right. of Judaism. And so, even if this is rooted in the culture of Judaism, mm-hmm. which is is the case for Exodus, nonetheless, we learn something about who God is. Okay. Because all the things he commands always come back to his character, which we're going to touch on in just a moment. Okay. Great question. So it's kind of showing us who God is and what he values. That's okay. right. Okay. Makes sense. We do have some more Old Testament ones to get to. We do have some New Testament as well. In the book of Job, chapter 3, verse 3, here we've got a uh, Job, who is speaking, and, and this is this is what Job says. Mm. He says, "May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is conceived." Now, if you remember Job's story, he's lost everything. He's in a place of deep mourning and depression, and so he's lamenting even that he has been born. Again, saying, the, "May the day of my birth perish, and the night that said a boy is." Conceived. Now, what's interesting about this, though, is a conceived child in the womb is considered to be the same person as the born child, mm-hmm. Job, that is. Right. It's one and the same. So this supports the idea of continuity of personhood, that who a person is in the womb is is not different than moments later when they're outside the womb. Not a it's, different thing, not a different that's person. Right. It's continuity from in utero to after being born. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. This is a beautiful verse and, and fascinating passage here where Jeremiah was called to be a prophet. He wasn't even born yet. He was in the womb, and the Lord calls him to ministry. Now, that kind of calling was typical for those, of course, who have already been born. But in Jeremiah's case, it was before he was born. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. This is God speaking. Highlighting again, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Value, calling, purpose, humanity, personhood, all those wrapped up into this verse as God calls Jeremiah uh, to the work that he had for him. You have something similar in the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 1, the the servant, which oftentimes uh, appropriately is referred, is connected to Jesus in his future ministry in the New Testament. 
And we see here, once again, a calling that is worked out, um, uh, excuse me, called to the ministry while he was in the womb. Here's how the verse says, it lays out. It says, listen to me, you islands, hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me and from my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. And then this brings us to probably the most famous passage, Psalm 139, which is a remarkable uh, psalm of worship, but verses 13 to 16 are probably the primary verses in all the Bible on this topic that are referred to in terms of a pro-life position. Because what it does is it highlights that God intimately is involved in the forming of the unborn mm-hmm. child uh, and cultivating an intimate knowledge of that child. The verses say this, for you, speaking of the Lord, created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. The Lord is very hands-on, isn't he, in these verses in terms mm-hmm. of what's going on uh, during the nine months um, of development. Continues, it says, I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Mm -hmm. And then finally, this brings us to a New Testament example, uh, Luke chapter 1. And uh, this was one I did want to get to because it connects to Jesus, of course, and Mm -hmm. Christmas and his birth and his coming and uh, verses 41 to 44 it says this, it says, when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby uh, leaped in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and in a loud voice, she exclaimed, blessed are you among women and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And that Greek word, by the way, baby, I mean, so that it's super clear, brephos is the Greek word. It applies to a child still in the womb. I mean, this is, and so you've got John the Baptist who is leaping and is responding when Mm -hmm. Mary arrives. Notice too, Mary is immediately recognized as the mother of my Lord despite being very early in mm-hmm. her pregnancy, uh, implying, of course, that Jesus is recognized as her son with all humanity and personhood, uh, and yet was unborn at that moment. So those are some examples of passages in the Bible that speak to the valuing of life and all that that entails. I think if if it's all right with you, I'd love to. We'll include these in the description of the podcast so you can spend time looking these up and uh, marking them down in your own, in your own Bible. For sure. So, so if that undergirds the morality of, and the the position of the pro-life view, what about the pro-choice perspective? What, what is the fuel behind that? I'd I'd like to, uh, so jump to the other side of the fence, if you will. And, help us to understand all of us as listeners, what it is for the pro-choice perspective that is sort of central and most important. And what are the foundational pieces that build that worldview? I want to share four very, as quick as I can. Um, 
the first one has to do with something in the realm of philosophy that has taken place that I personally find disturbing, just full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, because abortion as a topic for the pro-choice view typically centers on whether the unborn is fully human. And a number of years ago, when the um, uh, ultrasound machine was invented, that had a dramatic impact on this topic of abortion mm-hmm. in America, at least, because people could go and you could obviously look in the screen and you see, well, first you're not sure what you're looking at, but then all right. of a sudden it becomes clear and you see like, oh my goodness, like that's a baby. Like mm-hmm. you see arms and legs and you see the head and and the baby's moving maybe and all that kind of stuff. And that had dramatic inc- um, impact on on this view. Well, when that happened, philosophically, there was a pivot that took place. Nobody sort of recognized it or noticed it. But everything, by the way, begins in philosophy. It always does. And then it trickles down to pop culture, education, et cetera, into our music, into our news, into Mm -hmm. all of that. Well, what happened philosophically was, and I'm going to try to keep this as simple and brief as I can, but there was a effort and then success when it comes to how we view humanity of separating out humanity from personhood. What do you mean by that? See for sort of forever, humanity and personhood was viewed as the same. A human person was synonymous. Humans are people and people are human. Well, that's not true anymore because the effort has been made to separate the two to make, to make them not synonymous, to make them not the same thing. More specifically, today, what has taken place and has rooted now into our culture is the idea that humanity is granted to an unborn child mm-hmm. for the pro-choice called the fetus. Humanity is granted, but not personhood. Oh. We have split the two apart because he, you get humanity based on biology, but you get personhood based on ability. You earn personhood, Mm. you get humanity, that status based on the biology. Now, how is that effective back to the ultrasound machine? Well, because you look at what you're looking on the screen and you could say, oh, well, that may be human, but it's not a person yet. It's just biologically, it has some of the parts and pieces that are forming into a human being. Mm. But it's not a person. And now, so when would they grant personhood? That's ex- exactly right. See, who gets to grant personhood? Mm-hmm. What are the attributes of personhood? Like if you say, well, I have to earn it. Well, okay. How do I earn it? Well, there doesn't exist an official list for that. Right. But you have people that have come up with lists and some have lists that are five items long or seven or nine items, whatever the case may be. But here's some examples of what mm-hmm. typically would be on a list. Can you make a moral decision? Can you articulate a logical thought? Mm. Um, Do you have Mm self-awareness? Can you communicate? Okay, so those are some basic attributes. Well, for an unborn, you're disqualified. Right. But here's what's scary. So is a grandparent who has Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. Frankly, so is a newborn baby. This is a disgusting philosophy because what it does here is it degrades humanity. 
it says that biologically we have to acknowledge that you're human. There's something different about you, Mm -hmm. but you're actually less than human. If you can't earn personhood status, Mm. personhood status is, as I'm watching this sort of root into our culture where it really begins to be, um, uh, given or granted is in economic viability. If you have utility and you add utility or economic advantage to our culture, then you're a person. Mm-hmm. But if you become a drain to society, well, then you lose that and you become a burden. So who gets the health care? Who gets preference in our society? Um, where, where This is a slippery slope to some very dark and dangerous places. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I already mentioned, what about end of life disabilities? What about people who deal with real disabilities? What about a person who is healthy and sort of quote unquote normal human person, but gets into a car accident and has severe brain damage and immediately loses their personhood status, if Mm -hmm. you will. By the way, it's interesting that in other countries, Argentina, New Zealand, you can Google this and read it for yourself. Courts there in those nations have granted orangutans non-human person status. So you have an orangutan who biologically is not human, but because they can uh, function with some of these attributes to earn personhood, orangutans now are considered people. Well, who gets to vote? People. Who gets to have rights? People. Who get? You see the absurdity of where this begins to go. This is um, this is going on around us, and and we as the as the church, we need to be aware of this philosophy and fiercely defend. There is not a separation that humanity as biology and personhood as utility is is not the way it should be. And it's not the way that it is that people have value because of who they are going back to Genesis Mm -hmm. made in the image and likeness of God. So important. So that's one important piece to this movement. Here's a second one. What's next? The primary argument really of the pro-choice movement uh, that you probably hear all the time the number one thing is that a woman has a right to do with her own body, whatever she chooses, mm-hmm. my body, my rights, you know, hands off my body, those type of slogans that we see, uh, in response. I mean, there are clear, clearly situations where a person does not have absolute right to do what they want with their body. Mm-hmm. An easy example is prostitution. Mm-hmm. In addition, as we've learned more medically, Um, Over the past decades, an unborn child is technically not a part of a woman's body. Mm -hmm. For example, it is genetically distinct. It has its own heart and circulatory system. Uh, It obviously can be a different gender. It has a different or can have a different blood type. An unborn child is attached to the woman or to the mother, but it is not a part Mm -hmm. of the woman or the mother. And that's an important distinction, but it's one that's not often talked about. Third. Can I ask a question first? Of course. About yes. that, about number two, is some arguments I've heard have been that because a this unborn baby is not part of the woman's body, she has no right or, or she has no responsibility, rather, to let this unborn baby, this other person use her body to grow. She has no responsibility to care for it. And therefore abortion isn't wrong because her, the baby isn't 
back infringing on her rights. How would you respond to that? I mean, I've gotten, I've heard some as far as calling the unborn baby a parasite, which is, I don't know, yeah, sickening as well. But I, I would say two things. The first one is that a person who says that I often find they already have the presupposition of the view, mm-hmm. and it's it's it just becomes a way to try to justify what they already believe. Mm-hmm. Um, and second, it's it's a dismissal that the the child inside of them is a human person. Mm-hmm. And while distinct, is still dependent. Mm-hmm. And so you're already dismissing the life that's there mm-hmm. and degrading it to something something like a, a massive tissue or a tumor or, or right. something like that that uh, has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's really, I mean, that's, that, that's where this type of argument like my body, for example, which I'm a male speaking to this, so I'm also right. going to be very careful in how I'm talking about this. But, but nonetheless, it it really becomes it becomes a process of of how do I justify what I want in the end? Mm-hmm. And the the fourth topic out of the four here I want to talk about actually I think gets to the heart of why that actually is the case. Mm-hmm. Um, which let's just go out of order. Let's just jump to that right now okay. because now this is my opinion. So, mm-hmm. so I could, I could be wrong, but I, I really do think that this issue on abortion is actually nested inside of a larger issue right. about morality, about the morality of, of abortion. And I think the larger issue that's going on here is actually about sex and sexuality mm-hmm. and human behavior because agree. the this is the level where abortion really needs to be understood. In other words, what I mean by this is in our culture where free sex, hook up, uh, sexual expression, which is all of this is, by the way, worshipped. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is pursued. This is something that is embraced and celebrated and worshipped. Sex is a god mm-hmm. in our culture. It's an idol that we worship. The freedom to do whatever and whatever I want with whoever. Yeah, absolutely. And in light of exactly, and in light of that type of worldview and in that type of cultural practice, you have to have abortion as your get out of jail free card. Mm-hmm. The, you you have to have abortion because what that does is it frees me from having to take responsibility for my decisions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the whole thing of like it would be terrible if I got an STD. It'd be even worse if I got pregnant. Mm-hmm. Because that becomes then the burden or the weight or a consequence of my decisions to be sexually free and to have multiple partners or whatever it is I want mm-hmm. to do and pursue that. Uh, and of course, that's the culture that we live in too. And so when you have a situation like the Supreme Court decision, you have this e- dramatic emotional response. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's because women or men in the pro-choice movement just revel and love and enjoy the idea of abortion. Mm-hmm. You have to have it to be sexually active, promiscuous, and free. Because if my God is sexual freedom, or my idol is sexual freedom, then pregnancy is just an unwanted consequence that gets in the way of my idol, and so I have to remove it and get my beliefs to do whatever they need to do to remove that That's right. That thing that's standing in the way of me worshiping my idol. That's right. Wow. I... In my opinion, I am mm-hmm. convinced that's 
that's really the fuel that's driving the pro-choice movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, one more thing to mention about this, and that is one argument that I know you've heard, we've all heard regarding uh, support for abortive rights is, well, what about when the mother's life, life is at risk? What about those medical complicated, uh, medically complicated situations? And admittedly, those those are very difficult topics. And they're brought up as, well, the pro-life view has no compassion for those types of situations. Mm-hmm. On the contrary, those difficult scenarios should be met with compassion and care. Now, but now here, and here's the thing. I, I, I really do think while that's real, it's also a straw man argument. In other right. words, a straw man argument is something where you prop up that's yeah. just easy to knock down. Yeah. And it seems to make the case, you know, holistically mm-hmm. that your position is correct. What about these? What about, yeah. Right. Absolutely. See, thankfully, what we're talking about here is a situation that's rarely faced. In fact, stats and studies show that one-tenth of 1% of abortions done today are because of these medically necessary scenarios where the mother's life is at risk. And frankly, they're not even called abortions. They're called inducing labor Mm -hmm. when we have these types of things. Um, uh, in these cases, it's, it's, it's not an abortive process. It's an induction process and it's done so to protect as a protective measure for the mother, which by the way, is theologically and philosophically grounded because you're still protecting life. Right. The mother's life matters yeah, just as much as the unborn. And so these are very difficult situations to navigate through. See, the truth of the matter is that most abortions pursued are done so out of convenience or life stage scenarios. In other words, less than 2% of abortions today uh, that take place today are for reasons such as rape, incest, or the mother's life is at risk. So all those together mm-hmm. constitute about 2%. 98% are more the convenient side. Mm-hmm. And so does it happen? Yes. Is it real and need to be met with compassion and prayer and care? Absolutely. But thankfully, it's the rare, rare exception mm-hmm. and not the norm. In other words, you can have a very robust conversation about abortions of convenience. And um, I think that would be beneficial mm-hmm. to people. So as we begin to wrap up this podcast, I think another important question to quickly address is, so what does it mean to be pro-life? Because it can't just be a political position. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, the, the church is at its best when it stands up, speaks out, and fights to protect life. I mean, even, and all of us, we don't know this, but but even ancient records from the early church, they were known for saving and protecting unwanted children who sometimes were just left outside to die. This was one of the practices that the, the culture, the Roman culture and others noted about the early church. We need to continue that to this day. See, being pro-life means so much more than being anti-abortion. Mm-hmm. It means valuing life for the unborn, for the mother. It means valuing life for all people in all life stages. It means valuing the beautiful ministry endeavors of adoption and fostering children, Amen. caring for the disabled and for the elderly. Those are rich and critically important ministry efforts that the church should be on the front lines mm-hmm of modeling and leading. It it means valuing life for the disabled because we recognize that a person's value is not foundationally rooted in a person's ability. 
It can't be. The value of a person is because God has endowed all people, human people, with value because all people have in them imprinted the image of God, the likeness of God. All people, regardless of ability, have value. The church needs to be increasingly a lone voice mm-hmm. in speaking out about this. Absolutely. And we understand too, when it comes to being pro-life, that the most foundational reason that we value life comes back to who God is, his person, character, and nature. God is life. That's who he is. He is life-giving, the giver of life, provides the breath of life, protects life, loves life, sustains life. He this is who he is. And because that's the case, we also stand on that as well mm-hmm. in terms of being for life. We recognize all life is precious. All life should be protected. And even in the most difficult of situations, abortion should never be a first option mm-hmm. or a second or a third. Mm-hmm. One, I, oh, one thing that's interesting, um, I was doing some research on this uh, kind of response to, well, Christians aren't pro-life, they're just pro-birth. And I was, I was doing some research, and um, those who identify as evangelical Christians are twice as likely to adopt as someone who doesn't, and I think about 50% more likely to be in the foster, involved in the foster care system. So not that there isn't more that needs to be done there, but there is work being done by Christians there, and I appreciate that. Thanks for sharing that. I didn't yeah. know that. I want to take a moment as we begin to close and and just speak to those. Maybe you're listening to this show or you know somebody and you've had an abortion or you know somebody who's had an abortion. And I want I want you to know that there's grace for you. Uh, you're not alone. Approximately one in four women in America today have had an abortion. And out of those who have, 70% say it was the hardest decision they ever made. Mm-hmm. There is impact to this decision. It isn't Lifelong It isn't impact. like going to the dentist. I mean, it, it really is different. And that's really maybe a whole other topic for a, another podcast episode. Um, let me also mention of those who have had an abortion, 40% of those attend a local church. And, and I want you to know that if that's you or if some part of your, your story, that the sin of abortion is no less forgivable than any other sin. And as the church, I mean, we've already talked about being vigilant to speak up for and defend life. The church should also be on the front lines of being a gracious community mm-hmm. in the repentance and healing process for those harmed by this practice. The church should be a place where there is healing, mm-hmm. where there is prayer and support and comfort and compassion. Amen. So I want to close with... A couple words on, so what are some rules of engagement? Yeah. I mean, the whole podcast is what do I say? So so what do I say? Well, let me say a few things about what we what we should say. Uh, just a couple of encouragements. Number one, do not engage on social media. It will not go well. <laughs> you see these posts, you see somebody who stands up and says, well, what about this? And then they just get hammered. Mm-hmm. It is not a place for conversation. Um, no one's looking to learn anything on social media. Save it for another location. Mm-hmm. Um, number two or next, um, check your motivations before having a conversation with someone. Are, are you are you in the conversation? Are you pursuing this to win a debate or to win a person? 
And this could be any of us. Is your goal to have a short monologue that just kind of lays it all out? Or are you looking to have a conversation that can extend over time that is filled with um, sharing and listening, Mm -hmm. compassion and care? I do want to mention that coming up, at least here at New Hope Church, in the fall, we've got another apologetics class being offered, and it's it's going to be all about how to have conversations. I mean, getting into the the nitty gritty, if you will, of how how do I extend conversations? How do I approach difficult topics, this or anything else? Um, how do I engage and share like Jesus? And so I'll be looking for that in the fall. It's going to be a really important class uh, for many, many people to get into and to go through. Um, next, I, I want to mention this too, that, that as the church, we need to protect unity. Mm-hmm. Um, we are to be, as a church, mission-minded uh, first and most. We at New Hope say helping people find and follow Jesus. So what that means is that we're not defined by right-wing politics or left-wing politics, or even by a political party. That's not our identity of who we are as a church. Mm-hmm. Uh, first and most. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that the church doesn't speak to issues of the day. It doesn't mean that we don't have as individuals or households political leanings. But we do all of this with strong conviction on what the Bible says. Mm-hmm. And we do it again with extreme grace and kindness. Okay, going back to John 1, I think it's verse 14, where it says that Jesus came in all grace and truth mm-hmm. and weaving together that perspective so that we... Important. We stand with conviction and we want to be a voice in culture and not an echo of what it's already saying, but we're not going to be a jerk about it and we're not going to be divisive about it within the congregation, but we're going to appeal and love and we're going to stand on scripture. And then finally, um, just know, and you've seen it too, that there's going to be misunderstandings about this topic, um, there, there's going to be things that are said or statements that it's just blown out of proportion or hyperbole or emotional rants or things like that. Um, I think for the church, we need to, to stay informed on this topic, that we need to know what we say we know, mm-hmm. that we believe. We need to get into scripture and, and Pastor Jay is going to put those verses in the descriptor on this podcast or going through the verses again. There's others that can be, can be identified too. Uh, build thoughtful convictions, have a thoughtful faith, have one rooted in convictions on this topic so that you can interact in the realm of ideas with a person and not make things personal. Right. Can't just be ostriches putting our head in the sand or just attacking people because we don't like what they say. And when they attack you, they're attacking the ideas and not you Mm -hmm. because it really isn't about you. How we respond to those is so important, absolutely. But we have to be able to articulate ideas. Mm-hmm. If we only express our our personal opinions or feelings, then the attack does become personal. Mm-hmm. But if we can begin to articulate a biblical worldview, some of which was articulated or attempted to in this podcast, that will help you and I to be, approach the topic with humility and, and with strength, frankly. Yes. Yeah. Well, we dipped our toe in the topic. I, there's a lot more that could be said, but I, I really... I have prayed that this has been an equipping time for you as a listener. Uh, Thank you for, for being a part of this and, and, uh, and for all of us that we can both think and respond biblically on this topic with love and with compassion, with a heart for people on all sides of this divide. Um, This is a, a unique time 
in our culture, and this is an important topic mm-hmm. that we need to continue to be vigilant about and continue to have conversations about. Uh, speaking of conversations, if you would like to talk more, again, you can reach out to me at ryan at newhopeadel.org, and um, would love to hear uh, from you and interact more with you on this. So again, thank you for joining us today. I actually want to do something we've not done before. I want to close with prayer for this podcast. I just, it feels appropriate for, uh, for all that's going on and the importance of this topic. Let's pray together. Father, um, thank you for the take on a little bit of, of what your word says about abortion. We first, and we want to pray for our nation. We want to pray that you would uh, bring healing uh, to our country. And your word says that if we would turn from our wicked ways and, and respond to you, that you will come and bring healing to our land. Uh, we ask that you would uh, continue to do that. We pray for the church, the big C church globally even, but for our country especially, that you would uh, bring unity and action to the church, that we would be a community of people who are rooted in love and grace, and yet with the courage to live out the convictions stated in your your scriptures, Father. Uh, that we'd be unwavering in that, and that we, Father, would be willing to pursue and love the opportunity to minister to all people in all stages of life, uh, womb to tomb, as we said earlier on, that that the people you bring uh, before us, Lord, that we would speak life to them with love and compassion. We pray, Father, that the church would be the leaders, as we talked about here, of speaking up for the unborn, of valuing the lives of children, adoption and fostering, those that are uh, looking for families, Uh, Father, that um, you would help us to be a voice during this time for such a time as this on this topic. And so we pray for us as your followers, as your people, that you would help us to do that, Father. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.